Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 7, a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm chapter 7. If you haven't turned there yet, I suggest that you do. And while you're doing that, let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. But this love that we have for you is not, it's not enough and it's lax and it's marred with sin. And so, God, we ask that you would purify it, God. Let us see the love that you have for us and for your people that you've always had for it, God, and how you have always come. And though you might seem distant, God, you are ever-present. You are with your people and you sustain your people and you uphold them by your mighty hand. You uphold them by your love. You uphold them in the midst of your holiness and your justice. God, let us delight in you and let us delight in your Son by the movement of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Before the glowing dance of the embers faded away, the Christians were blamed. Who else could burn this great city of Rome to, to the ground rather than the Christians? It must be the Christians. And so thus the slandering tongue of Nero gave way to this great persecution, the first great wave of persecution that brought with it the martyrdom of Peter and of Paul and many others. It all started with the slander of a tongue against God's people. 
But eventually, this act of slander, this one who would oppose the people of God, had the same degree of evil, then turned back upon him. Nero, the one who slandered the people of God, brought this great persecution of God, against God's people. At the behead, his own behest, his slave, his closest slave, grabbed a dagger and thrust it through his throat. What a fitting end. Isn't that beautiful? What I want you to see is we see the same thing in this text here. Those who oppose the people of God, those who slander the people of God, they will meet their vengeance. So what do we do then? In the midst of all of this, brothers and sisters, take refuge in the Lord. Go to the Lord and wait for him to avenge his enemies. So now, not a seven, not a two, now we got a six-point sermon here, trying to, our best to follow the flow here. So we're going to see that the Lord is our refuge and avenger. So we can, verse one and two, how are we going to see this? Verse one and two, you see that the Lord is our refuge. He alone is the one that we go to. The Lord, my God, is my refuge. That's verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 to 5, you're going to see that David's pleading, I have innocent hands. I'm not perfect, but in this situation, I have innocent hands. And then he's calling on the Lord, just arise, arise, Lord. Make these judgments. And then in the next verses, 8 through through 11, you're going to see that God, God is judging everyone. Not just the evil, he's judging everyone. And so you're going to see, what does it look like when he judges those who are righteous? Right after that, the next set of verses, verses 12 through 16, you're going to see this horrible picture of what it looks like when God judges the evil. And then in verse 17, how do we respond to this? As a people of God, what do we do? How do we respond to this truth? Let's go back to the text here and get started. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, we'll start with the intro. Shigenayim uh, is also found in uh, Habakkuk 3. I think the only two instances of this, some type of music or song, when you see those types of words like that, where they're not translated, they might know what they mean, but they don't really know, so then they don't translate it. So there it is. Shigenayim of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning, here's a little bit of context of what's going on, concerning the words of Cush. Who is Cush? Well, Cush is a Benjaminite. Verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. You can hear this, a desperate cry, a desperate cry of a broken heart. And they will always cry out to God first. And he's not just his Lord, it's, oh Lord, and it's not just God, it's my God. To you, to you I'm going to cry. So brothers and sisters, cry out to God first, and it's to him. And you I take refuge. It's, it's in the Lord himself, that's where his refuge is. It's, it's not in a different circumstances or anything like that, or a different situation. But in you and you alone are my refuge. The chicks aren't safe until they're under mama's wings. Proximity can do a little bit of good, but it doesn't do much. In the Lord. In the Lord. 
In the same way, proximity to God is no refuge at all. Coming to church, worshiping, a little bit of closeness to God does not do it at all. You must be in God and in Christ to find any refuge. Remember Lot's wife. She did mostly everything right. She believed, or not really, but she fled. She heeded the words. She fled. But she didn't take refuge in the rock. Remember how they fled to the rock? Where Lot and his daughters did. She looked back. She did mostly right, but she did not take refuge in the rock. It's only in the Lord that you can take refuge, and it's only in the Lord that you can be saved and be delivered. Verse 2, what do these enemies look like? Like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rendering in pieces with none to deliver. They're like lions. But it's not just his body, it's his soul itself that they want. Take my body, I could care less. You can have that, but my soul, no, you're even going after my soul. They want complete destruction. They don't want to just harm you. They don't want to just injure you. They want to open up your soul, open up your heart, plow it, and plant in these cancerous seeds of sin that your soul might be destructed. Last week, we talked about these enemies of God. How do we understand them? Verses, uh, Psalm 1 and 2, I would say, is the the introductory to the Psalms. They give us a framework by which we read the Psalms and understand them. So you see the enemies here are those who oppose the Lord and his anointed one. You see in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So these enemies of God are the ones who are opposing the anointed one of God. Now, having laid that foundation, let's take it a, a little bit step further. What do they look like in our lives? In my life, what do they look like? But we need to know who the enemies are. Washington crossing the Delaware on that frigid night, he knew those drunken Hessian mercenaries, those were his enemies when he got to the other side. It was quite clear. When uh, Caesar... Uh, Julius Caesar took his, takes his ships north from Gaul and goes to the southern, uh, southern end of the British Isles. He knows those men painted in blue, yelling and screaming and running around, those are the enemies. But we think, as Christians, we actually go through this life thinking, I might have some inconveniences, but we read through the Psalms and we go, really, who's my enemies? That's how naive we are. We don't really think that we have enemies. See, this is how subtle the poison is. So the man at work giving you a little bit of extra attention, he's not just giving you a little extra attention. He wants your soul to be corrupted. He wants your children to grow up fatherless. Likewise, that lady giving you a little bit of extra attention who laughs at your stupid jokes that nobody should laugh at. She's not just doing that. No, no, no. Don't be naive. How many of us in this room grew up in broken homes 
because our parents were naive as to who their enemies truly were. Let us not make those same mistakes and have our children raise up, be raised up in those same situations. The surest way to lose a war is to not know you're in one. You've already lost. So we have a sober awareness of our enemies. And we want to take refuge in the Lord. But now let's see David's posture. What is his plea? How is, what is he saying about himself in this situation? Verse 3. Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, what he's being accused of, if I have done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, verse 4, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Here's David pleading his innocence. Again, not, not just not his whole life, but just in, in terms of this accusation that's being made against him. And so we don't expect perfection in the Christian life, of course, but my, what joy there is in innocence and clear hand, clean hands. If you've been accused of something, to say, no, my hands are clean. Husbands, how many of you can say, no, that's not true. Look at my phone. Go ahead, scroll through the history. Have at it. What a joy and delight it is to have innocent, innocent hands. And also from these verses, you can learn that the innocent cannot presume as though they have this uh, hedge of protection against them just because they're innocent. As one of the Puritans, one of the later Puritans write, if God was slandered in Eden, if God was slandered in Eden, we shall surely be maligned, maligned in this land of sinners. So innocence is a delight, but it provides no protection against false accusations. And so confident is he that he's saying, if this is true, then let my enemy overtake me. He wants my soul. If I'm impure, let him have my soul and let him have it and take it. Let him trample it to the ground. You see almost this returning back to dust of Genesis 3. Like Achilles tying up Hector and dragging him down. Or in Horatius, you know, Epictus, brave Horatius, darted one fiery thrust. And the proud Umbrian's gilded arms lie clashing in the muddy, bloody dust. If I am not innocent, may my end come. But let it come by your hand, God, and through your judgments. So in the midst of these accusing words and slandering David, he seeks refuge in, in, in the Lord, right? He doesn't defend himself, but he seeks refuge in the Lord. And then he, he pleads his own case in his own innocence. And now we're going to see, well, who will defend him? Who will act on his behalf? Go back to the text, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Let us not be impatient, brothers and sisters. 
But with, pray this with, with the assurity that it will happen. So that David's here calling the Lord to rise up, maybe perceiving, maybe thinking that he's not doing anything. Here's this man named Cush has been slandering me all of this time. Lord, you haven't done anything about it. Arise. The Lord will surely rise to defend his people. And absolutely those who have taken refuge in him. He will. And look at the manner in which the Lord rises up. It's in his anger. Verse 6. These are, these are the truths that should encourage us and then both frighten us at the same time. We, we somehow would, would take delight in this thinking it's going to be for enemies, but it should also give us great pause knowing we too will be judged. And notice kind of what's developing here. It's a little bit of a courtroom vision type psalm here that's happening. You have an accusation and David pleading for the, for the Lord to rise up and come into the seat of judgment, thinking maybe it's been vacant, that the Lord hasn't been there the whole time. And now you see the, the people beginning to assemble around. And now you will see what happens when the Lord does take his seat and begins to bring judgments. Let's look at verse 8 here. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, that you, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. It's not just David who's been slandered, but the Lord, he feels indignation every day too. So here's this innocent man, not perfect, but innocent in this, in this accusation. And he's have his cries and now his eyes are upon the Lord and he's awaiting for what will happen. Same time, knowing that this judgments are going to come, they're going to, it's not just upon the ungodly, but upon the righteous as well. All of God's people will be gathered up for this great day of judgment. In verse 9, Oh, let the wicked, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. This has been the cries of God's elect, of God's people. Ever since Cain's hands were raised above Abel. This is not new to David. This is the story woven throughout the scriptures. This battle that is happening between the seed of the woman and the seed of the servant. Who will win? Who will judge this? It seems as though the evil ones are constantly having victory. Is that really how this concludes? Is that really how this happens? No, but this has been the cry of God's elect for centuries and centuries and millennia. It's not just when Cain crushes Abel's head. You think the serpent is going to, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Then right in the next chapter, we see the seed of the, of the serpent crushing the people of God. 
Then after that, you have Lamech, who takes multiple wives and kills multiple peoples and jokes about it, sings songs about it. It's horrible. Keep reading. Right after those verses about Lamech, what do you have? And then, and then the people of God began to call upon the Lord. In the midst of strife, in the midst of the evil that is all around them, that is what prompted them to call then upon the Lord. This has been the cry of God's people while they're in Egypt in slavery. God, may you, may you bring an end to the evil of the wicked ones. While they were under persecution throughout the book of Judges, while they're in exile in Babylon, God, they're crying out, God, may you bring an evil, bring an end to the evil of the wicked ones. Crying out to him again and again and again. And then it's, it doesn't end there. It's not the Holy Spirit comes and then it goes away. No, it began. Look in the early church. They were slandered more than we are. Here they are picking up babies that they didn't have sophisticated abortion. No, they would just throw their babies out and, you know, expose them. Same evil, same wretched evil. But the Christians actually did something about it. And they would pick them up. So they would pick up all these babies. And then they would, what are they doing with all these babies? Well, they talk about eating flesh every time they get together. And so they have, they're slandered. They're thinking this early church, there's rumors going about them that they're taking these babies rather than raising them up into the Lord. No, what they're doing is they're, they're cannibals. They're talking about eating flesh, drinking blood, communion. That must be what's happening. That's what's happening. They call it these love feasts, what they used to call this, the, Lord's top, the Lord's table. They have these love feasts. What's happening in there? They were slandered constantly. Why? Because of their godliness, because of they were following Christ. It goes on in Augustine. Augustine writes that anyone who begins to be godly presently, he must prepare to suffer reproach from the tongues of adversaries. Godliness prompts the world to press against you and to slander you, to oppose you. And so here is David crying out in the midst of that saying, I'm not at fault. I think I'm, I'm good here. I have many other sins, but in this, this is not true. Even going on then throughout the rest of history, our, our brothers and sisters, the godly ones, it was the innocent ones that were drowned. It was the innocent ones who were burned at the stake. It was the innocent ones. It was the godly ones who were forced to swallow red-hot swords because they confessed the name of Christ. So never let this cry be too distant from your lips, pleading, Oh God, let the evil of the wicked ones come to an end. Never let that be so far from your lips. But let your heart know that it will come to pass. Go down here, the end of verse 9. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. See the thoroughness that is happening here. We're masters of deception, so we think, right? Surely... We want to have our sins held against us if we get away with it, right? If no one else here on earth sees it, then 
and we should be good. And we're like children. And they think they get away with so much. It's kind of comical at some point. They think they get away with so much. And then you walk in the room and it's like this mad dash. You're like, hide stuff. And you're like, what's going on? Oh, nothing. You're like, really? You're not getting away with it. It's really obvious. Your eyes, they give it away. Same thing with us. We, we think that the Lord, sovereign God who holds your life in the palm of his hands, that he won't be able to peer into your wicked, depraved thoughts. Really? No, no. He tests the minds and he tests the hearts because he is a righteous God. So the righteous, as, long, as well with the wicked, they will be judged before our righteous God. Okay, so you, you see the flow here of the psalm. There's a little bit of slander, accusations going against David, and he's innocent in this. So he's, first thing he does, he doesn't, he has an army, he doesn't kill Cush, he doesn't do that, no. He, he seeks the Lord, he takes refuge in the Lord. And he pleads his innocence, and he asks for, God, are you going to rise up? You're going to take the seat of judgment? And God does. But it's not just the wicked, it's the righteous who are judged as well. But then you see what will happen to the, to the wicked. With, let's look in verse 12 here. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Verse 14, behold, the wicked man conceives evil. And is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. Look at the child who, who doesn't know that the parents are watching. The slanderer presumes upon the patience of the Lord, thinking that nothing will happen. That's not the, the case. Look at the first line here. If a man does not repent. This is a state of all of us. This is, these verses will happen to all of us. Not just if we slander this. All of us. Unless you repent. All of this will happen to you. We must all repent or you will fall under the wrath of God and fall upon your own judgment as well. Our dear friend, uh, Charles Spurgeon, I can't plagiarize him. You can't improve him, so I'm just going to quote him on these verses here. He's, God will wet his sword and what does Charles write about that? He said, God's sword, or God's sword has been sharpening upon the revolving stone of our daily wickedness. If we do not repent, it will speedily cut us into pieces. Turn or burn. Turn or burn is the sinner's only alternative. Okay, so that's about wetting a sword. Charles, what do you say about these arrows? Even now, he writes, even now the thirsty arrows long to wet itself with the blood of the persecutor. The bow is set. The aim is taken, the arrow is fitted to the string, and what, O oh, sinner, if the arrow should be let fly at you even now? Remember, God's arrows never miss their mark. Judgment will tarry, 
but it will never come too late. So you see this progression then as well in verse 14. Don't think you can just dabble with a little bit of sin. What ends up happening? Conceives of sin, but gives birth to pregnancy, and then it goes on into giving birth. Full-fledged wickedness. Full-fledged wickedness just from this little bit of dabbling from sin. And we think we can get away with, don't fall into that trap, brothers. Sisters, don't. It's a sure line. It's, it's not good, God's goodness that you would get away with it. No, it's Satan's lies that you're believing. Don't fall into that. And this sure self-destruction that will come upon his own head and upon his own skull, his violence descends. Evil will always labor in vain. You have Nero slandering the people of God, persecuting the people of God, he's killed by his own dagger. Pharaoh kills the sons of God's people. And he himself and his whole nation have their firstborn sons killed. Peniah, that we, we referenced, Hannah's prayer. Well, that's in reference to Peniah, his, her husband's other wife, slandering her and mocking her. But it's her that God delivers. And it's her that gives birth to Samuel, this great prophet, who then anoints David, whose psalm we're singing. It's Haman's gallows, 75 feet in the air built for the people of God as he slandered the people of God. And who was hanged there? It was Mordecai. It was Haman, not Mordecai. He is the one who swung from them. So do you see also how all of this gloriously points to Christ? You can't read this and just leave it at David. How is this pointing to Christ? Who's been slandered more than our Messiah? He can save others, they mocked. He can save others, but he can't save himself. Oh, he has a demon, they say. You do a little bit of good work, oh, he has a demon. Prophesies are beating him. Prophesy, prophesy, who struck you? Who else in the midst of being slandered is able to cry out to the Father, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. He alone has pure hands. He alone has a pure heart that is able to stand before the Father. And that is why we plead with him and take refuge in him that he would stand before the Father, that his righteousness would be ours. Because we might be able to plead innocence in one particular case, but in the span of your whole life we have nothing. We have no plea but Christ and Christ alone. And so we must, we take refuge in him. In verse 12, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword and has bent and readied his bow. Well, it's this sword that has pierced Christ and it's these arrows that have flown and hit Christ by the pierced nails and the spear that thrust through his side. Surely he has borne our griefs, Isaiah writes, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Yes, the sword was wet, and yes, the arrows did fly, and they hit Christ. He was crushed for our iniquities, and on him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. 
And it's the wicked one, Satan. Right at the moment when Christ is up on the cross, right at the moment when he's rejoicing, Satan's rejoicing in his victory and rejoicing in the death of Christ. At that moment when he is at the highest in thinking he's doing great, that is his very undoing. It is the death of Christ that brings the death of Satan. It's the death of Christ that brings the end of death. John writes, And the devil who was descended, deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Yes, he dug the pit, absolutely, and he fell in it, and his own unrighteousness has fallen upon him. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. For the people of God, this is a beautiful song. So what do we do? Briefly, what do we do? One, is take refuge in Christ. Take refuge in Christ. How fitting for the sheep of God to find rest in the loving shepherd of God. This world will bring an end of you. It will. But it is the grace of God that will drive you to Christ. So this psalm isn't just if you run across a man named Cush, who's a Benjaminite, and starts slandering you. It's not as, then this psalm is for you. No, it's for all of God's people. Have you ever had your words turned and twisted and pierced back on you? Surely you have. If the world hates you because you won't follow their agenda and their theology and their doctrine... This psalm is for you. Seek refuge in Christ. If the world hates you because they twist the words, the gospel that you share with them, seek refuge in Christ. Repent of your sins also. It's not just in terms of the world that we seek refuge in Christ. We need to seek refuge in Christ even from our own sin. That's how wicked it is. We are the slanderers as well. We're not just the ones who are innocent all the time, passively be receiving other people's e evil. We are the wicked ones too. How much more do we need to seek refuge in Christ? Turn to him with all that you have. One, seek refuge in Christ. Number two, in the midst of this evil that is happening, wait. Wait upon the Lord. Sometimes the, the greatest acts of devotion are just doing nothing and waiting and trusting that God will act. Do not return evil for evil, but leave room for the wrath of God. The Lord has readied his bow and he will take vengeance upon them. Are you going to take the bow out of his hand? Are you going to take the sword out of his hand? No. Be patient. Wait upon the Lord. Take refuge in Him. He will deliver you. And while you're taking refuge in Him, be patient and wait upon the Lord. And then finally, rejoice in the goodness of God. Verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness. Prior to that, I was pleading my innocence and my righteousness. Now I see how this all unfolds. Now I'm singing and praising God for His righteousness. 
I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord the thanks to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. His righteousness and his grace and his goodness, beloved, they will ever be our song. Start now. Start pleading with him. Take refuge in Christ. Be patient in the midst of all of this. And while you're doing that, sing praises to the Lord. Let us pray. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we long to be a people who can live in this world of wickedness and trust you and know that you will deliver us. God, give us that faith to trust in you. God, give us hearts that are pure and innocent. How, what a delight it is to have pure hands and a clean heart, God. But we know that can ultimately only happen through the work of your Son. So we ask that your Spirit of your Son would work in us and through us, God. And may we turn to you and sing and delight in your righteousness. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.